0: host of New Books in Food at newbooksinfood.com. This week I interview Danielle Freeman. She's the author of Try This, Traveling the Globe Without Leaving the Table. Um, she's also a judge on Top Chef, and I interviewed her at a Borders bookstore in New York City. Please enjoy. Welcome. If you want to have a book signed, um, you should buy it before we're done or right as we're done or now. And then right after, Danielle will sign your very valuable copies. More valuable after she signs them. So I'm Alan Salkin. Um, I'm a journalist. Is that okay? look at me like, no, you're not. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I first met Danielle when I was writing a newspaper story about this new trend three long years ago of food bloggers, four four years ago, about food bloggers. and I, she was the first person that I met on the story, and she said, okay, meet me at 6 o'clock in front of European Union, which was a restaurant in the East Village which had famously fired about four chefs already in their, in their couple months of existence. And you know, who showed up but this really hot, um, skinny girl <laughs> in a, I believe, turquoise dress with glitter makeup on, and within... I was very charmed immediately, and within five minutes, this restaurant had been open with the new chef for six minutes, <laughs> and she wanted to make sure to beat every other food blogger, <laughs> and she was grilling the owner about the, was his prosciutto American,
1: yeah,
0: or European, because it was European Union, how could you have American prosciutto, right? That's true. So, that's how I started to get to know her. Now, uh, we've, we've been around together, and um, got to know each other, we're friends now, and she asked me to do this, and just to talk a little bit about the book and about her. Um, the book is "It's Try This, Traveling the Globe Without Leaving the Table. And also, I'm, the reason I'm recording the interview is because I'm doing a, a website called New Books and Food. And if you're just absolutely fascinated by this interview or you want to tell your friends, um, it'll be posted up there within a, a week or two, New Books and Food. But um, the book is like, we were talking about it earlier, it's like a memoir of her appetite. Um, it, it's it's like a travel book where most of her traveling is done through her plate um, at restaurants uh, in in New York a lot of them and uh, you can sit down. you know if her brother <laughs> um, we're very close yeah. now how you doing so. Uh, <laughs> um, Anyway, it takes you through, it takes, it's, it's a strange kind of memoir because it's like, it, it, it so quickly turns between um, talking about her experience or the first time she tried Japanese food at a restaurant in New York and then into quick instruction um, it's about everything you need to know about Japanese food and it's very easy to, di- to digest. Um, Danielle and Heath grew up in uh, Short Hills, New Jersey. Um, Danielle was an actress before she was into fu- a food blogger or food critic. She spent two years as the food critic for the Daily News before those bastards decided that uh, they didn't need a food critic anymore. Not had nothing to do with her, just uh, it, it talks about the decline of major newspapers and food critics. Um, and she's now a judge on a television show on Bravo called Top Chef Masters. Um, and I'm going to ask her about that. We're not just going to talk about the book. And she's still running restaurant uh, So let me ask you uh, question number one. Why did you write this book this way:
2: um, Well, I would just like to say I never wear glitter makeup anymore. That's not true. once that ran in the New York Times, <laughs> it was over for me. Um, why did I write it this way? Yeah. Because I wanted it to be a book that you could pick up, and I wanted it to be twofold. I wanted it to be something that you could read through and be fun and pleasurable, aspirational eating, reading, but at the same time, like, if you were going out for Vietnamese food or Thai food, you could literally pick it up and have sort of a crash course. Um, Say someone asked you out on a date to a Vietnamese restaurant, and um, you're a guy and you wanted to know what you were talking about, not feel intimidated, impress the girl, you could literally, like, open it up, read 10 pages, and you're good to go. Suddenly, you're an expert.
0: Uh, so to get a flavor of the book before I ask too many more questions and speaking of dating I asked Danielle to read a couple passages and, and this passage is from the Korean the Cuban section um, and she decides to take a first date to Victor's Cuban restaurant in, in New York City I'll just I'll leave it at that so we we'll start okay. our date
2: I got it okay. I got directed what I was going to be reading earlier this afternoon <laughs> okay Um, our date was going swimmingly enough, so we moved into the dining room for dinner. And though I can't remember my date's (coughs) name for the life of me, I do remember what we had for dinner. What? I'm a foodie. We never made it to a second date, but we did share a mind-blowing roast-suckling pig, the lecho and asado, that I'll never forget. A 48-hour marinade of sour orange, lime juice, garlic, and cumin teases the sweetness and subtleties from the pork, and the results are intoxicating you could get high off the incredible garlicky aroma wafting up from the meat. If you want to sample the representative foods of Cuba on a single plate, then the Luchona shadow is the dish to order. It's traditionally served with a roast moro, also called morosi cristianos, which is mixed black beans and rice laced with mojo, and boiled yuca smothered in garlicky mojo, a, high, a highly aromatic sauce made with lots of garlic, olive oil, cumin, pepper, and orange or lime juice.
0: And then there's another, another little passage in, the, in here about your housekeeper. Can you read that? Are you, are oh, sure. Page uh, 58. Yes, she had a housekeeper, but
2: whatever. <laughs> Lots of people have housekeepers. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. I've had a thing for savory plantain since I was young. Our housekeeper, Cookie. Her real name was Ori, but everyone called her Cookie. Used to fry up plantains, which are called tostones, for herself as a snack. I had no interest in her green plantains when they sat on the kitchen counter. But once they hit the sizzling oil and she started seasoning, I'd appear out of nowhere. It was not unlike a dog begging at the dinner table. And I still have no shame when it comes to food. Finally, she'd give in and fork up a salty smash coin, then wrap her arms tightly around her plate, to discourage greedy children from reaching in while she watched her shows. Don't think I didn't try. I wouldn't have done that for a potato. If I had my way, we'd all be eating plantains instead of potatoes. I hope I didn't just alienate the entire state of Idaho in one starchy swoop. I had no idea that what I'd been snacking on since I was seven was called tostones, but I can understand why they're a staple of Cuban cooking. And though the plantain is technically a fruit with a striking resemblance to a banana, it tastes much more like a starchy vegetable than it does a banana.
0: So what's your first food memory? Uh,
2: My first food memory. Wow. I don't know. I think hot and sour soup. Uh Apparently I ate hot and sour soup, so I might be creating this food memory in my mind. But starting at the age of one, my mom fed me hot and sour soup. Um, and I just remember the murky brown broth with like the little pieces of fried bean curd floating and Asian mushrooms and all that good stuff.
0: Well, there was a section here about your your family uh, Chinese dinners. Um, tell us about those.
2: The Jews, they like to go out for so Chinese. It was Sunday Chinese. nights.
0: It was Sunday nights.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, but I think mostly Sunday nights. I mean, we and your definitely. Dad would overorder. Yeah, you'd always over-order, and we'd pretty much always get the same thing. Every mooshu, shrimp, or chicken, there was always debate. And um, everyone would get their hot and sour soup. or My brother would get egg drop soup. And um, yeah, we ate. But at the time, we ate the way Americans eat Chinese food, and I didn't know any better. And it was only really when I got out of college and moved into New York and ventured down to Chinatown and wandered around that I discovered I had no idea what Chinese food was and I had no idea what it could offer.
0: Um, where where was it that you first had your sort of Chinese food mind-blowing opening experience?
2: Um,
0: For a lot of New Yorkers, I've noticed that they think Li Palace was the, you know, is like the the place where they, where sort of Chinese food was brought into the mainstream, but that... I think there were a lot of brave people going downtown before Shun Lee decided to come uptown.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, Shun Lee came uptown to feed the wealthy uptown folks who didn't feel like going downtown. But at the same time, Shun Lee's food is pretty damn authentic, and they have a very good Peking duck. So, you know, (laughs) don't snub them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I, what I snub is the, is the idea that people have that all of a sudden Chinese food existed when sh- that a lot of people, New Yorkers, t- seem to have. I, don't know, I went to an anniversary lunch there, and I was kind of, is me talking, but I yeah. was kind of annoyed you go by, ahead, by the Alan. whole <laughs> celebration of, oh, they came 25 years ago, and
2: all of a sudden we discovered Chinese
0: food. Anyway, what...
2: No, um, I mean, Chi- listen, I think that the point of all this amazing food we have here is all these immigrants came to this country... And they wanted to eat the food they were used to from their homeland. They were craving their comfort foods. So they opened restaurants, and it was one of the probably easiest ways for them to make money was to open restaurants. And they certainly weren't going to feed themselves subpar food. So, you know, where they lived, a lot of them lived downtown, opened these amazing restaurants that you could find in China with hand-pulled noodles and soup dumplings and amazing dim sum and roasted pork and Peking duck and all that good stuff. But yeah, if you go to one Cantonese-American restaurant, you know, in a suburb or something, you're going to get sort of your greatest hits in one restaurant.
0: Why do you think some people, you included, are so driven to this adventure of food? What did it mean to you? you? Why do you hold on to it so tightly?
2: Hold on to what?
0: Food. Why, why is oh. it the thing that works for you?
2: Um, why do
0: some of us go downtown for Chinese food?
2: Because I think our lives are so routine. And we have errands. You go to work. Um, there's a lot of things that are responsibilities. And everybody has to eat. And it's this opportunity for adventure every time you have a meal, especially dinner, with people that you love. You're sharing it with someone. You're not doing it alone. And it's exciting. I mean, it's also, like, another thing you consume, right? Yeah, but in the book,
0: there's, so, there's like, you know, there's a sort of, I wouldn't say there's a success, succession of men, but there's um, a succession no of book. men, but there's definitely, there's a lot of first dates, there's a lot of dating, and, you know, it's, for you, the food is more consistent than the men.
2: Well, all the men are gone. <laughs> the only thing I have left is the food. But I take the food. Yeah, any- for her number out yeah. <laughs> No, but I take food any day. I mean, I prefer a great steak over a great man. I mean, you know, I think that you have to have your priorities straight. Um, I, yeah, because for a while, for me, I was I was so obsessed with food, so preoccupied that the person I was eating with was only almost a marginal figure, and I had to be very careful to pick someone strategically that was going to eat what I wanted to eat or share and maximize the opportunity. So I started picking my dining companions by who was the most adventurous or, you know, who was an expert um, in Chinese. I would grab or to go to Koreatown or someone like that, someone to guide me. I would pick guides to take me through if they knew much more than I did to, you know, enlighten me so I could be educated and learn.
0: But then, when you become a critic, when I've eaten out with you when the Daily News was paying, you really
2: down and dirty. Well, you get to decide
0: what, what, you know, you have veto power for the menu, so it sounds like a perfect situation. Yeah, for you. memories.
2: Yeah, when, when I was a critic um, at the Daily News, you really had to maximize your meals because you had to go to a restaurant at least three to five times. Um, so you had to really sort of try to. Experience and sample the span of the menu in those few meals, you had to order a lot of food. So, certainly, we couldn't order two of the same thing. I didn't want to order something that was, you know, like a fill in the blank dish or unexciting or just a plain old salad. So, I really took all power away from my dining companions as we were paying and, um, you know, just to sample the spectrum of the menu, to sample the chef's specialties, something that looked really You know, ridiculous.
0: Well, speaking of man and eating, what what do you know about Spotted Dick?
2: What do I know about
0: it? What is Spotted Dick?
2: It's a Suet, it's a British pudding made with Suet Uh with raisins or currants in it. Mm -hmm. It, Its name is much more fun.
0: Yeah, it's not as interesting as the food itself. I'm also, I like when you, in the Japanese section, when you talk about, um, I hate when I start eating sushi with my hands and I get looked at as if I'm doing something wrong. What's the proper way to eat sushi and why?
2: Well, I also wrote the book because a lot of us don't know how to eat everything, and we're too embarrassed to ask how. We've been doing something for so long, and we don't even know what the right way to do it is, or you go for sushi all the time, and um, you might not be eating it the way they eat it in Japan. And it's fun to know you know, to take an insider's approach to eating. It makes it more interesting. You get to... um, You really get to, like, learn about that culture. You get to throw yourself in. You can eat like you're in another country for the evening. And like you're talking about sushi, sushi was created because originally you couldn't... You know, once you caught a fish, it would go bad. So they salted or fermented any fish or meat and put it in containers and they pulled it out. Well, then... They stopped eating it that way, and they decided they would actually stuff the fish with vinegared rice or sakeed rice or rice wine and stuff it in the fish. They'd throw that away after before they ate it, but then that gave it the flavor, and that became the tradition of sushi. So now you just get the fresh vinegared rice on the bottom, and... um, you know, but that's part of the tradition of it all. And it actually was originally a snack, so it was finger food. So it was really never meant to be eaten with chopsticks. So you don't have to eat your sushi with chopsticks. Like, you know, there's no niceties. The The restaurateur and the staff are not going to think you're, you know, a barbarian because you're picking up your sushi. That's actually what you're supposed to do. You shouldn't touch your sashimi because you're not supposed to touch the actual fish But it's much more fun and hands-on and sensual to pick up your sushi with your hands. So when you pick
0: up your sushi, you're supposed to grab the
2: rice. You grab the rice on the bottom. And you also don't dip the rice in the soy sauce, or your entire little nibble will taste like soy sauce and not the fish on top. So you sort of just dab the top of it in just for a little seasoning, unless the chef tells you not to dress it, obviously, and then put it in your mouth. And you also aren't supposed to put, there's little things like putting the wasabi in the soy sauce. You're actually supposed to just dab it on the top of the fish if they don't already do it for you because it's like buttering your bread. Because if you put it in your soy sauce, once again, it tastes like nothing but wasabi or nothing but soy sauce. And it really does change the difference of the taste. Like, you know, I I don't do it now because I think it's the right way to do it or it's cooler or it's inside baseball and I know right from wrong. It actually tastes better. You can taste the nuances of the fish. And you feel like you're eating more like, you know, someone in Japan having their lunch.
0: This is serious takeaway value here. Remember, if you learn <laughs> only one thing tonight, how to eat sushi, it's, it is better that way. You, you had the same experience I had of actually having sushi outside the, um, I never say this word right, the Shijiki. Tsukiji. Yeah, market in in, um, in Tokyo. It starts The market starts at like 3 in the morning, and you can go have sushi starting at about seven in the morning with the the people and it's the freshest sushi in the whole world. It's an incredible experience.
2: It's amazing. It's amazing because you're they just fished all the they just brought all all the fishermen just brought all their fish and they auctioned it off in the market and now they're ready for their breakfast. So they go to all the stalls next door where they're selling sushi for breakfast and they just you know, cut it up, dice it out, and nobody speaks any English, and all the fishermen are, like, smoking cigarettes in your face, and you just point to, you know, what's next to you, and that's what you get. But having said that, you can have just as good Japanese food, maybe not as fresh, but just as good and interesting in America. So, so you don't have to go somewhere else to eat.
0: So after you, you went to Harvard, a um, college up near Boston, and uh, in the Boston area, <laughs> and then you decided to become an actress at some point, and you moved to
2: L.A., I did. I got the acting bug. Um, I think after some people after school fall in love with school. I was a little sick of school, um, and they had, they actually were filming Goodwill Hunting at the time at school, and I auditioned for it um, inadvertently. I went with like a four by six picture stapled to my academic resume, which they do not care about at all, um, and I ended up getting. Um, whatever, a manager, whatever. I end up going to Lee Strasburg, went out to L.A., but I think the one constant in my life has always been this just profound love of food. Like, I just love it. I'm curious. I get excited. I love to plan my meal, my meals the night before, you know. I love to see what other people are eating. In an ideal world, I'd like a bite of whatever you're eating.
0: <laughs> that doesn't
2: always work out. <laughs> I, you I often this, oh, get it though I want you to
0: read a little passage uh, from when you were in LA and from the Korean section of your book it's on page
2: so one, this is when I was living in LA by myself yeah okay it was a hundred degrees outside and I had the flu I was living alone in Los Angeles and all I wanted was to be back in my own bed in New York <coughs> I was miserable I'd been holed up in my sublet, subsisting on a diet of chicken soup, pickles, and ginger ale when a friend stopped by to convince me that all I needed to get better was some samgitang, Korean-style chicken soup. I'm all about trying new things, but not when I'm running a fever. But my friend insisted, and I didn't have the strength to fight him. Or to change out of my pajamas, for that matter. So I went with him to Kungama, a restaurant in LA's Koreatown. We might as well have hopped a plane to Seoul. The only Koreatown I was familiar with, in New York, is just a block or so long, 32nd Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in Midtown. But Los Angeles' K-Town, as the Angelenos call it, occupies a substantial part of the city, about three square miles of it, in fact, and all the street signs there are written in Korean as well as English, and Korean barbecue joints, supermarkets, saunas, and karaoke halls line the streets. Keep going. Oh, really? There's Kungama. I didn't know this part. (laughs) Um, There's Kungama, he said as he pointed to the entrance, then pulled around back into a parking lot. And instead of heading to the front of the building, he started walking toward what seemed to be the service entrance. Keep in mind, I was running a fever, so I wasn't really up for adventure. But unfortunately, I had no choice but to follow him as he had disappeared inside, so I trailed in after him, pajamas and all. Why are we going in this way, I whispered. Everyone uses the back door, it's the scenic route, he responded. And I want you to see their soups, he said, pointing to a series of huge black iron kettles that reminded me of witches' cauldrons and fairy tales, bubbling with mysterious liquids. The aromas emanating from the kettles were incredibly rich, spicy, and meaty. That's good. Thank you. It has a happy
0: ending. She eats a Korean soup and it cures her.
2: Yes, I don't want to, to leave you
0: hanging. I mean, there's a lot more in the book, but <laughs> the Korean soup part turns out happy.
2: Next time you get sick, I highly recommend Korean chicken, ginseng. And where in New York? Where? Where, where? where to go? Kung Gang San, Korea Koreatown. There's so many. I mean, there's a hundred. Anywhere on that street walking, you're pretty, uh, you're gold. I mean, there's also sort of a Koreatown in Queens, but if you live there, which is awesome. Um, but if you can't, you know, head right over there. And it's usually, it's pretty much a staple on any menu, but it's got ginseng, it's got ginger, it's got jujubes, it's got chicken and it's I love the way the Koreans eat because it really is like food is health you know everything's connected and that's the way they eat if they need more energy they'll eat a bowl of um, Korean porridge
0: well, you have to tell of course one of my to me the highlight of your acting career <laughs> I have to bring it up early. It's really. what was it?
2: I honestly don't remember
0: were you, were you on a HBO series about an Italian-American family?
2: When I say hi, Mrs. Soap? That, is yeah, that right? Yes, she what? was on yeah. the Sopranos. A, say, I, don't, I really her don't,
0: her don't know what you want. Yeah, that, I want you to tell us your I'm, life. I'm really not doing that.
2: Right. <laughs> don't make me she do comes that. comes out students
0: and talks to uh, Carmela really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, um, you've got another section on diner's rights. <laughs> Yeah, diners. Tell us about the diners' rights. There's sort of a diners' bill of rights in here. There's a there's little sections, but the, the book is organized so that there's different um, ethnic cuisines, chapter by chapter, and then in between there's some there's th- something about um, dating and eating, but there's one section about diners' rights. Um,
2: well, I think you know I think it's so interesting with dining out. There's all these assumptions. and Nobody asks a lot of questions. I mean, one, it's not your job when you're eating. It's like your time off and you're trying to relax and enjoy. But we get to restaurants and we have questions and we don't ask them. And we don't order that dish because we don't know what it is. Um, or we're too embarrassed to ask when we could have you know, tried something exciting and new. Um, and in the same, you know, respect, you go to a restaurant, and there's no rules written on the wall for like what you are allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. If you are allowed to open a bottle of wine and send it back, um, if you are allowed to transfer your tab to to the table, all these things. There's never been a bill of rights. There's bills of rights now for airlines, and if you're on you know if you're on a plane, passengers' bill of rights. But there's none for a restaurant. I really think we should create one. So I so I took the liberty, <laughs> um, and in my world, you can transfer your tab to the table, <laughs> because I think it's ridiculous. It's the same. It's all under one roof. And the only reason You're they're doing this, so the it is sort of
0: bartender gets tipped separately, right? And you
2: should pay the you should tip the part, bartender separately. On when but on that your way be to the table? Yes, I think that you need to close that door, you know, and head to your table for dinner. But I fully believe you should transfer your tab, and you should feel free to put up a fuss about it. <laughs> I give you permission. Um, but no, I talk about things like, you know, for instance, ordering a steak is always a precarious thing, you know, unless you're in a really great steakhouse. You order your steak rare or medium rare, um, and it comes well done. You have the right to send it back. I mean, for me, having a steak well done. I write in the book, is like eating dirt, you know? I don't want it. Um, but if I eat a, a quarter of it or half of it or I let it sit around, it's mine. I bought it. I need to let them know right at the time that I'm unhappy and give them the chance to, you know, make it up to me and to, you know, fix, I did already put the order in. Um, you can't wait till the end of dinner to let them know something like that. But you have the right, you know, to eat eat what you ordered and not have to pay for that. And what about wine? What about sending back wine? You really can't. You can send back, if you don't like a glass of wine, it's best to taste it and they should offer you a taste. And if you're not familiar with it, <coughs> take a sip. If you don't love it, don't let them fill the glass. Um, some places will try to just fill your glass without letting you take a sip. You, so you might want to be vocal enough and ask if you could first sample the wine. I usually do that. Um, opening a bottle of wine, unless it's rancid, it's yours, I think. I mean, you picked it. If there's nothing wrong with it, that yes. was like, you know, we all make mistakes. But it's not their but it's mistake. You know, you can't just send it back because you don't like it. I don't think that's fair to the restaurant. Restaurants have rights, too. They do. I'd
0: like the bill of rights because I actually, <laughs> i like the right to order my steak well done. Because I actually like
2: it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Pretty See, much. this is this was liked- actually an argument we used to get on when I took him on reviews.
0: And everyone, and was like, like, all <laughs> the food people I eat with, it are always <laughs> like, they, they save the worst steaks for the well. It's like, well, so they're ordering bad steaks. I mean, I, I like the way it tastes better cooked. I think it's one of these things like people who work in hair salons always fuck up their hair because they have too much time. It's like foodies want to <laughs> eat raw meat so they can like, taste some ineffable thing in it to me, it just tastes like a, mouth, a mouthful of warm mush. I want the char. I want the taste of, of grilled meat. And, I, and I, I'm, Anyway, I'm sick of...
2: But You're, you're not but,
0: the only person i fought with about this.
2: No, I know. We've fought about this before. But to me, you're not getting the nuances of, of the steak. You're only tasting char and you're tasting its texture. But you know what? You have a right to your opinion. Everyone's a critic, so you do that. But I'm not sharing a steak with you. <laughs>
0: Damn. All right. um, what else was he going to ask you? So um, let's, let's talk about Top Chef Masters a little. How did, how did that come around? Um, what, tell, tell us what your role is on the show, first of all. Top, Top Chef Masters, <coughs> does anyone not know what that is? It's a competition show on, oh, on a, a cable up the network. Yeah, it is. Yeah, a bunch of, so Top Chef is a show where a bunch of amateur or semi pro chefs compete for a big prize at the end of the season. And Top Chef Masters has already established chefs competing. For prize money that goes to their charity, and Danielle is a recurring. Are you on six episodes.
2: I'm on eight episodes. Eight episodes.
0: episodes it's, of on of it's on tonight.
2: Check it out.
0: There's three more, two more
2: episodes in the season. Yep, tonight and then the last
0: one. So what? How did this happen? And what is your job there?
2: Um, I got really lucky. Um,
0: After five years of really hard work, you got really that's lucky. That's right.
2: No, I, I I filmed a pilot <laughs> for Bravo last summer with Curtis Stone, who is now the host. And it was like a game show. I don't know if I'm really allowed to talk about it, but I loved it. Um, and it didn't go, but um, I guess from that, they felt comfortable enough with me to bring me on as a judge on this season. And they also wanted to represent um, the new world of food. They really did. Like they want, They know that the next generation of foodie talks about food on websites. They tweet about it. They take pictures of it. It's just a different world. Um, And I think they really wanted to, like, honor and respect and represent that. Um, That, you know, we eat, we read differently, um, and we write differently about food. And um, it's been awesome. My role is really easy. I eat, and I give my opinion, and I vote. And that's it. And I argue. And I definitely, you know, stand by my opinion, which is sort of hard and, you know, intimidating when you disagree with Ruth Reichel. <laughs> um, but, but it was also amazing. It, it was amazing. she,
0: likes snub you in the cameras? just, like, turn her back on no.
2: you? No. She's actually very sweet.
0: Um, you and Curtis have some serious chemistry.
2: <laughs> it's only on screen. Curtis has a girlfriend. Mm.
0: But he's lovely.
2: No, he's great. I think re- Curtis is great, too, because he's a chef. And that's a good thing for the other chefs. As a host, they respect him. You know, when he walks into the kitchen, they're not like, "Get the hell out of my kitchen! You're just a talking head." You know, they respect him as a chef. He made his way. He worked for Gordon Ramsay for many years, and um, he's sort of, you know, new generation of you know food world too.
0: So the girlfriends is the, the, the thing in the way there.
2: I don't think. That <laughs> <happened>. <laughs>
0: So what, what's the what's something that nobody saw that's not going to be on that, that uh, something funny that happened?
2: Well, there was a bug episode. Um, there was a bug challenge um, early on, and Curtis—I uh, forgot the guy's name. He's some guy on the Travel Channel who's uh, Adam a, Richmond. No, he's a daredevil eater. Um, I don't. I don't oh, remember. I know who you mean. Yeah. A hawk? Someone hawk? Matthew Hawk actually is who it is. He's a daredevil. And um, so his challenge, he apparently eats a lot of worms and snakes and cockroaches and mice and lots of things. And the challenge was was to eat all these, cook all these different bugs and make them taste good. And Curtis had the unlucky job of tasting them and judging. Um, And we filmed that night. I didn't have to judge, and we filmed that night, and Curtis vomited the entire day. Really? Like, through dinner, and they just edited it appropriately. Yeah. So he would literally be like, Danielle, what do you think of the salmon? And I'd be answering, (laughs) and he wouldn't be sitting in his seat anymore. Oh, my God. He was throwing up in the garbage can. So I really dodged a bullet with that. We really lucked out that we didn't have to eat that.
0: Have you been recognized on the street? How has that show affected
2: your life? I mean, people love food. You know, people watch food TV. People love food. And it's fun. It's just, I think being recognized or people talking about Top Chef Masters just shows how much everybody's a foodie these days and how much the world loves food and how universal the language is of food, which is why I wrote the book. I mean, it's this language we all speak, but... Half of us are blind to the other side of the menu because we've been ordering the same thing forever. And or we're too embarrassed to ask what something is that's, you know, on someone else's table and we want to try. Well, okay, so you don't have to ask. Now you can read about it. You know, or maybe like the next time you go out to eat, try something different. Order something new that I talk about in the book. You know, maybe find a food that's familiar. Like that's what I did. I, I started with peanut butter. I was always very obsessed with peanut butter, and someone started talking about this African peanut stew called Dorawat, it's West African groundnut stew, and I was like, ooh, peanut butter, and you know, it wasn't just peanuts, it was like thick peanut paste, and I tried it, and it had, you know, chilies and lots of, it was spicy at the time, and I was sort of still intimidated by food at that time, and I fell in love with that, and then I started tasting more things with peanuts, you know, like Thai and... Um, you know, everything in Thai food has peanuts, so really, if you're allergic to peanuts, Thai is not for you. (laughs) But that's the way to eat, you know, you find something you love and start to eat it in another cuisine. And you really can, like, suddenly open your world. I mean, if you love barbecue, try Korean barbecue next time. You know, it's amazing. It's still got that nice char, but it's got a sweet, moist flavor, and, um... There's so much barbecue. There's Turkish barbecue. You know, the world is filled with barbecue.
0: Where's a good Turkish barbecue place?
2: Um, Alibaba has good Turkish Mm -hmm. barbecue. Where's that? It's on 32nd, between 2nd and 1st. So how how have things changed? I think that's in the book. So it could also be a restaurant guide.
0: Well, it isn't. You, you do. You ha- It's a really unique blend of like your story, and then before you even realize it, you've like taught me taught us something as you're reading it. it it's it really is an easy way to um, learn a hell of a lot. I mean, uh, even about you know, it, it's it's almost like downloading the brain of somebody who's been checking out the New York restaurant scene for five years. You know, it's like all these places that everybody talks about are in here and what you're supposed to order there and what, you know, the names of the chefs that you read about all over the place. It's really a good, almost, um, sign of the times. And what, what has changed in the, you know, in the, in the four or five years since you've been, you know, sort of self-anointed yourself restaurant girl? Um,
2: For me or in the restaurant world? Well, I think in the,
0: in, the, in the media restaurant, you know, and you were very, there weren't a ton of people like you no. five years ago. Um, how has that changed? And, and what, is it, what, what is it... Do you feel like you're getting lost? You're, you know, There's too much out there? Or have, are you like the old guard now?
2: <laughs> I hope not. I'm tweeting. I started tweeting a few months ago. So I'm trying to keep up with the young kids. <laughs> no, I don't feel like I'm the old guard. I no longer chase restaurants down. I certainly wouldn't show up at a restaurant five minutes before... Um, Only because at that time when I distinguished myself, I think if I were to give advice to somebody who wanted to distinguish themselves as a blogger, I would say, pick something distinct about what you stand for, who you are, what you love. For me, I was the girl who believed if you were open for business and you were charging full price, you were open for review because... People want to know where to eat. They want to know what restaurants to avoid, what to order. And I got so excited when a new restaurant opened. For me it was like, you know, the premiere of a movie or the opening of a Broadway show. It's very exciting. You know, people really follow chefs. They fall in love with their food, and they become big fans, and they follow them. And for me, you know, that was something that was very exciting. And I distinguished myself because I was the first person in that door. I was the first person to realize that um, the Russian tea room was reopening. That was my big, like, entree. I remember I passed by and befriended, flirted with a construction worker outside and found out that story, and suddenly, you know, I was put on the map a little in food. But now, I honestly, I don't want to. My interests have changed a little. I'm less about the restaurant and more about learning and sharing my love of food. Because I don't, you know, pretend to know so much more than anybody else. I just took the time to eat and learn about it, you know, and pass it on. And, you know, if you open, like, a chapter and decide to try a banh mi, you know, or Korean barbecue, or whatever it is, I, I thought I hated Indian food, you know, until I gave it, had to give it a chance because I was really becoming a food writer. And I fell in love with it because there's so much, you know, so many amazing things. And I was just scared of something because I didn't know about it. It's like anything else that, you know, anything foreign we're intimidated by or we don't want to know about. But we might be missing out. Like, we might be missing out on a new favorite comfort food. You
0: know? Well, I thought Indian things interesting because you talk about. It, I think your father didn't like it, right? Is that my it
2: parents is? just never ate it. it was my like my it parents was... didn't.
0: It was like <laughs> Jewish people in New Jersey. Like it was like they would eat Chinese, but <laughs> <New> Indian <laughs> is dirty. Jewish book you know?
2: discussion. Yeah, I mean,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but my, you know, my, my to this day, my father won't eat curry. It's, weird, yeah. it's the weirdest
2: thing. The guy, will, like, you know. Well, you know what curry is? Curry just means gravy. That's all it means. Tomato sauce, Italian tomato sauce is curry. Because it just means a sauce. I never knew that. Anytime anyone would say, this is curry in it, I'd say, I'm not eating it. I'm scared of curry, you know. I didn't know what it was. But it literally just means, like, this wet sauce. It could be in any cuisine, you know. It's across, you know, genres. It's really, it, it means nothing. And so once I really, like, plunged in, you know, you discover all these things like that they... Cook things in coconut milk, which is amazing. Or what they can do with vegetables, which is extraordinary and makes them so interesting. And parents could get their kids, you know, to eat vegetables suddenly. You really, like, learn new things. Vegetarians, you know, could really um, benefit from going to Indian more often. And that's all it's really about is, like, having a different experience. We all go to the same jobs. You do the same thing every day. You go out to dinner, you can take an adventure. You could take a little trip.
0: It's, it's also back to the thing about the, how it's changed. Your, your, when I first met you, you were taking pictures of the food, and it was actually a little bit unusual to have somebody whip out a camera. Now, I mean, every restaurant is full. I mean, I've heard chefs talk about banning this because it's actually slowing up service. They're not able to turn tables over because people are, taking and them. they're asking these all these questions. Just I mean, everybody is you now. You know, you were like this, <laughs> um, but it has changed. I mean.
2: Um, yeah. They
0: know what they're dealing with now. They they expect to see people doing that. Whereas you, you were you know, you were one of the first.
2: I think they should be flattered that people are taking pictures of their food, that they're excited about what they eat, that they admire it. But I understand what you're saying. I mean it does slow service down a little. I think you grow out of it a little bit and you pick and choose your battles. I don't really take pictures of my food anymore unless it's like you know, something beautiful. But it's a way of expressing ourselves as well. Like, you know, we share. Like, if you ate something amazing and took a picture and tweeted about it, and I, do that. I saw it, you know, maybe I would run and get it. Someone just tweeted about Nutella shooters the other day, which I thought sounded genius, you know? And I looked at the pictures, and I wanted to know where to get them. And, you know, it, it's a fun way to share. It's news. It's just another form of delivering news right? It's just more immediate. It's just more instant. I'm grateful when somebody tweets a picture of something I wanted to eat. Sure, there's always going to be too much of everything. But I also think it's, you know, everybody's a booty and everyone's sharing. And I think it's a great exchange. You know, it's an amazing thing that we can all like share what we eat and bond over it. Not only if we're all sitting at the same table, but if we're all sitting at different tables.
0: You know, both your parents are gone, but you, you devote the book, uh, you know, for my mom I feel like he's Barbara
2: Walters right now.
0: <laughs> I, I, do, I do my best. He's you know. got a few more years on me. I think he's only in a, yeah, in a, it's a tough question. Yeah. Oh, but did, did you feel it while you were writing it, like in the way you were communicating with them? Did you
2: Did you think a lot about them while you were writing? I did because I ate so many wonderful things with them, and they raised me to fall in love with food, whether it was a uh, pretzel, my mother loved um, street pretzels in New York I'm almost like embarrassed to admit it but she loved it, And the love for something like that was so amazing or for you know bag chestnuts or for soft shell crab when they were in season or for um, a slice of pizza I mean I talk about it in the book how we used to drive into you know basically it's like the ghetto in New Jersey where you know there were shootings all the time in the name of veal cutlin ravioli and fountain soda. And we really do it. And my brother, sister, and I still go back because it's amazing. But they really taught me to appreciate food, not just fancy food, not just like four-star food or chef-driven food, but all food. And we should take, you know, I get just excited about like Mr. Softy Trucks and Soft Serve and Rainbow Sprinkles as I do about like, you know, and caviar and eating at Danielle.
0: So here you, you talk about in your last meal. One of the things you're
2: going to want is is a stout syllabus.
0: What is that stuff they're serving? Yeah, in?
2: they're what no longer serving, they're it. serving it. Not serving it now. So what are you, you basically get curdling cream with like a, a beer or something. Oh no, I'll have it's to make it myself. It's the at the Breslin, which is a hot restaurant. When I'm on, on my deathbed, hotel. I will ask April Bloomfield to bring me a stout syllabus. What
0: else is in your last meal?
2: Um. Boy, I don't know. Um, peanut butter. <laughs> peanut butter would be good, yes. Um, I don't know. I love so many things. I really love yakitori. I love sushi. Um, I don't know. Yogurt lube kebabs are really good in Turkish. Um, there's so many different things. I mean, I ho- I would hope my last meal lasted like, you know, an entire day. Years, yeah. yeah. It would be a big mishmash of different cuisines.
0: It really would. Are there any questions from anybody here? Any family members who <laughs> try to put her on the spot? Well, um, you sort of touched on this earlier
2: about how, um, how Danielle, you were more of a pioneer. That you did this when a lot of other people didn't. It. And it's sort of an amateur because you it, your background is more of a love of food as opposed to an educational background. Um, how... And you made it through sort of everyone sort of feels like they can be a critic. How has it been challenging to sort of distinguish yourself in that environment? Um, because everyone's a critic now, you're saying? What are you saying? Because she started... You've
1: made it an
2: You've made it um, accessible to become a critic, where you sort of taught people how to be more critical going into a restaurant. And so now that everyone can sort of be a critic, whether that be good or bad, how is it... How do you have to sort of... How is that challenging for you to distinguish yourself in that sort of environment? Um, Well, first of all, I think it's amazing that everybody's a critic and props, you know. I mean, I think that we all are critics, and we all should be. Um, You know, I mean, I think my interest, I'm not worried about being that distinct from those people. I I don't really want to be a formal newspaper critic anymore, in that sense, it's not what I'm in love with. I'm sort of in love with food. I think restaurants change so much, unfortunately. And after a while, when you write about a restaurant, you know, it almost, it it loses its originality and almost becomes a formula. And I never wanted that to happen. And food doesn't do that for me. There's so much to explore. I mean, I want to write my next book about American food. Like, I, I, my interests fall to a macro level of food. Like, I want to learn about food and share it, you know. I want to get more invested in the particulars and less about the restaurants.
1: Does
2: that make sense? Yeah. Danielle, what's Roger? Trend <laughs> noisy restaurants. Roger, <laughs> what's the trend of noisy restaurants? Roger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny. In other words, are you saying I even too think much they're noise? noisy? Um, no, I mean, either I'm getting old
1: quickly. Or yes. <laughs> the music
2: they play and the lack of carpet—you can't hear. I yeah, totally agree with you. We all agree. It's an acoustical nightmare these days to eat out. And they just—it's—it's oh, it's purely decor, though. I mean, they just need to stick some buffers around the room.
0: I went—I was in Spain, and and they uh, in in um, December. I got to eat at El Bully, but I also ate at a lot of other places. And you go into some restaurants, and there's no music. It was, it was and you can actually talk to the people across from you. And I—I I don't think this is a getting old thing. I'd like to believe it. I I think the downfall of um, he just
2: wanted you to know he went to Al. Yeah, (laughs) before it It closes. Let's be honest. Closing this (laughs) way to get it
0: in. But Al, they didn't play very loud music because the food stood up. You didn't need to like you know muddle our heads with with all of this noise. I I think I think it's too cheap now to build a really loud sound system for for five hundred dollars. You can blow everybody out. Have you talked to restaurant, you know, chefs about this and why?
2: I mean, I used to write about it. I'm not sure they understand. I feel like they they want to be hit. So it
0: makes them easy. It actually makes it easier to work when there's a lot of loud music. But they also want
2: people to have a fun night out. I think there's that fine line of a night out and dining out. But I think that. People have taken it too far, and they're so worried about people having fun and people being entertained, and that their food's not going to stand on its own, that they bring in other distractions. It's a sign of insecurity, in fact. Perhaps. Because if you really believed in your food and, you know, thought that people were going to have such an amazing experience dining there, then you'd be comfortable enough to have no sound at all, and people could chat. And I'd be more than fine with that, personally. (laughs)
0: A few more questions, but just before we wrap up, um, you, you can go to the front and buy a copy um, while we're still doing this, and then and bring it back, and Danielle will sign it. So uh, you will buy five or ten copies, um, and I'll also remind you that this interview is going to be on new books and food. If you want to recommend your uh, families and friends to uh, newbooksandfood.com, it, it may be a kind of cliche, but when people still talk about uh, gourmet food, they always talk about French food. Do you?
2: Do you have any reflections or comments on that? Yeah. um, Yeah, I think that it it sort of is a little bit cliche. Uh, People used to think that the French were the only people who knew how to open a fine dining restaurant and knew how to serve. French service is like, you know, the epitome of service, and everyone would copy that. But I feel like now there's... Look at Marais, Um, you know, Michael White has opened several fine dining establishments. Um, Greek, um, why am I forgetting his name? Michael Uh, Salakis um, put Greek on the fine dining map. I mean, you know, they've brought it up to a very serious chef-driven level. So I don't think it's just French anymore. If anything, I feel like French has fallen by the wayside a little. People love bistros and brasseries. But not so much fancy French, you know, multi-course meals anymore. It's a a lot. It's a lot. It's a little too serious. I think people have become a lot less serious about food. They love it. But just because the chef takes it seriously doesn't mean you have to take it seriously. And it it shouldn't be fussed with so that the life, like the soul, is out of it. So I think, you know, French has lost its way a little bit.
0: There is a French section in here, though. So if she does pay, just nod to the... um in uh, <laughs> <laughs> a uh country. Sister. is would you
2: rather question. Would you rather go to a restaurant that you know you're going to like because you've been there before or try a new restaurant that you've heard mixed things? Like? Oh, boy. I feel like she's re- r- referencing is. a restaurant from last week. <laughs> that a that is a
0: really hard question.
2: Um, I would rather go to the restaurant that I've never been to with mixed reviews because I'd rather try something new. And would
1: you be disappointed after Would you say I should have gone to the other restaurant?
2: Or you think no, you the- because I know what the other restaurant's food tastes like. I mean, you can imagine
0: you'd be, there probably is a mood you could be in where you would want the old familiar, you know, I, sometimes I just go to Katz's because I need a pastrami sandwich <laughs> that I've had 20 times before, you 200 do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hi. Hi. I have two questions. One is, so has this inspired you to be everywhere? Ever- Yes,
2: yes. Um, yes, I think when when I was reviewing for the Daily News, it was hard because I was eating out at least six days a week, hopefully taking one day off. But now, yes, I definitely dabble. I like to, like, see things. Um, I like to steal, like, restaurant secrets. If you see something great that a chef does, make it, like, approachable at home and try. But, um... Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, Julia child at home, but I certainly try to cook. So that's, you, you like, do you like looking for the food in, in places where chefs go to find things? Um, is I mean, mean, I love... love where, like a lot of chefs today... Oh, like they where they go, go get ingredients. ingredients. Gardens that they buy from.
0: And Sourcing is really Sourcing. important Sourcing. these Sources. days. And then you, you can even, and you can trumpet it on the menu. Yeah, I'm going no, I'm, I'm not that hardcore. Was about singing, every <laughs> menu has singing medals
2: on it. Yes, thing you So how do
1: you stay so thin
2: and attractive? <laughs> That's like the question of the week. Totally I don't know. Um, I well, I've certainly gained quite a bit of weight, but um, I mean, I think it's like picking your battles. I would never waste a meal on something mediocre. I don't. I wouldn't skip a meal. I'm not someone who really skips meals, but I'd rather not eat that subpar sandwich you're putting in front of me than just because I'm hungry and wait to find something else. I just, you know, I feel like every meal's an opportunity and you don't want to waste it on something that's forgettable. Um, and, you know, you don't need to clean your plate. I mean, I'm not like a butterfly, is that what they call it when you eat? But I definitely have a really big appetite. Cheeks. I you Good metabolism. Good metabolism. It's catching up with me, though. I a
0: question. How do you it eat, eat so much and still so strong.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not want to open a restaurant <laughs> If I have learned anything, it's that I don't want a restaurant I think it's I really admire and respect people who open restaurants, but I think it's really daunting and um I think you have to know what you're doing
0: what well, on your on' the restaurant curl you interview chefs all the time yeah I love that. what what which chefs have really taught you a lot? Or which were the really most surprising, you know, soulful kind of interviews? Who would you really connect with?
2: Um, God, there are so many. Um, I don't know. I really like people like... It's, it's, I think it's fun to interview people that you don't normally get to talk to or that aren't open to the public, like Keith McNally. I became friends with him after interviewing him. Because Keith,
0: Keith owns Balthazar and Pestis right. restaurants.
2: Um. And he opened himself up to me. So that was interesting. Or Danny Meyer. Or, um, you know, very private chefs because they're all human. And also I think you get to understand their cooking um, and appreciate it more when you understand who they are and where it comes from you know, it becomes much more soulful or you learn that they grew up eating this dish, you know, or that you learn they grew up with goats in their backyard and they've been butchering their whole life and they're not trying to be the new badass butcher, you know, in the restaurant. That That's the way they grew up. So,
0: yeah. Two more questions. I can if ask some more somebody else has them. She doesn't want to ask a, it at a, home. Vital, VitalJuiceDaily.com. Um,
1: Do you usually think rice correlates with quality of food? Or do you think you
2: find just as much good food inexpensively as you can? I think that you can find amazing, inexpensive food. I think you find amazing inexpensive food. You can find dollar-like duck buns and flushing that are amazing. Having said that, I think quality of produce when you're eating, like, a full-fledged meal is very important, and that costs money. So it really depends, like, what you're going to eat is my answer, but you can always find affordable, phenomenal food. Thank you for that question. (laughs) What's your take on
1: molecular gastronomy? Do you
2: like it? You know what? I really don't. I really don't. Like, I, I don't try to take very strong opinions on most of those things, but I don't find it particularly gratifying. At the end of the day, I usually find that I'm still hungry when I leave, and it may not even be that I'm not full, but that I'm not full with, like, you know, something that was, like, soulful and rich, and, um...
0: It doesn't do for you what you want a meal to do.
2: Yeah, I think I used to be excited when I first got into food about these, like, you know, ten-course meals and these little nibbles or foam or, um... Things that were, you know, became solids that used to be a gas or liquid that used to be something else. It's interesting. And, it, you know, I admire their passion, but to me, it's not fulfilling. It's not what I want to put in my mouth, you know. <laughs> what do you want to put mouth? Oh. Uh-oh. Well, thank you all for coming.
0: And Daniel will sign books. And the book is, again, called Try This, Traveling the Globe Without Leaving the Table. Um, and I'm I'm very grateful to be given this opportunity to interview you. And if you, I have other interviews and new books and food if you're curious. Um, but uh, buy the book, visit restaurantgirl.com, sign up for her newsletter if you want to hear more from her. And um, thank you very much. You can find other interviews at newbooksinfood.com, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Alan Salkin. Thanks for listening.